Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film Podcast. I'm delighted to say that this week we're joined by a great Kim Newman. Uh, Kim, uh, welcome to the Kermode on Film Podcast, which you've been on before. And you are here to talk about uh, cult movies because you and I have just, uh, well, we finished the, the new series of Secrets of Cinema in which you are the lead writer. We did three no, the episodes. the old series. The old yes. series, yes, I beg your pardon. We think yes. it's series We think it's series four, we're not quite sure. Um, and the last episode was cult movies and this was something that was very close to our heart. There's been an incredible response to it. We've had loads and loads of, um, uh, of responses on Twitter, some of which we'll, we'll revisit during the course of this podcast. I wanted to start by saying... Um, when when we started doing the the secrets of cinema cult movies uh, we we knew at the beginning that it was going to be complicated because as i think uh, the, the opening line of the thing was the first the, you know the first rule of cult movies is there is no such thing as a cult movie so from your infinite knowledge kim how would you define a cult movie <laughs> yeah there are several definitions the one that i like is a film that was discovered by the audience rather than promoted by a studio or an industry. Uh, And that doesn't exclude like huge popular successes. One of the things I think is interesting is for instance, Casablanca, which we didn't include actually, is a huge cult movie. For a while, so was Gone with the Wind. Those were like big Academy Award pictures. They were like the the definition of mainstream cinema in their eras but they were kept current or rediscovered. Casablanca became a huge cult movie in the 1970s among very different audiences from the ones who'd seen it before. There were films like It's a Wonderful Life, which were underperforming on their original release, or Rocky Horror Picture Show, which we were then discovered by passionate and devoted audiences after initially being written off. It's almost like the, the, the definition of a cult movie is, is it's something you go back to watch again and it's something that isn't on its first release. I think no, yeah, there are plenty of films that the first time they come out you think, oh, this looks like a cult movie and then they quietly vanish. Um, and of course, that's the thing. Cults have to have to form. They, they're like coral reefs or something. They have to gather around the original film or text. And the thing, the ones that we found really interesting are the ones where the cult audience have 
discovered things or found things or recognized things in films that weren't necessarily what the original makers intended. They found new meanings themselves. You know, they were, I think maybe cult films are the ones we interact with. Uh, they're, they're films we don't have an opinion on, films we have a relationship with. You have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strasser, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Yeah. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. What about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Ilza, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. looking at you kid yeah you see i think that relationship thing is key i remember when i was uh, a kid um first hearing about screenings of casablanca i was a teenager screenings of casablanca that were outdoors in which people went along dressed in trench coats and trilby hats and you know and dressed as the characters and people kind of joined in and this was around the same time that the rocky horror thing was happening baker street here and obviously uh, in new york and i remember thinking that's the weirdest thing, but that was my first experience of cult cinema. And then going to see late night double bills of movies that were broadly billed as cult. So, you know, Eraser Head and uh, and John Waters. I think the point that you're that you're making there is absolutely the key to it. The key to a cult film is a film with which we have a relationship, in which part of the pleasure is the more you go back and see it is like meeting an old friend, and then you can't. You, and also that key thing that we tried to talk about in the programme, of you find something in there that wasn't necessarily in there at the beginning. That's kind of the key, isn't it? Yeah. And, and obviously that makes for a really interesting sociological phenomenon as well, which you can get slightly too precious about. Sometimes cult films are just films because people love them. Yeah, um, I do. There is a sort of... Uh, maybe there's a darker aspect to cult cultishness because obviously cults are, are scary yeah um in that some films or some uh, franchises or phenomena have what we now call a toxic fandom i mean we are all aware of of this process i actually don't think for instance star wars or harry potter count really as cults because they're still current they're still as it were first run maybe the first star wars has been around long enough to be a, yeah, a cult in its own right separate from the whole rest of the franchise but no those are those are big mainstream popular entertainments but within the fandoms of those big popular entertainments their own little mini cults aren't they it's like those people uh, who the the early um, Star Trek fans who fantasized about the, the relationships of the characters and started what they call shipping. Yeah. Um, it's where your own fantasies mesh with the product. And sometimes, of course, the people who created the product get really annoyed about this. You know? well, uh, because because they, there is that, that's not what I meant at all 
feel, isn't it? Yeah. That interesting thing that, you know, the phenomenon that is uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, which comes out of Twilight fan fiction. That's, that's right. where it begins. Yeah. In the same, and, of course, that does absolutely date back mm-hmm. to, to, to Star Trek fan fiction and people imagining relationships between between Kirk and, and Spock and, and, and going off on their own. I mean, in terms of Star Wars... I'd say that the thing that you would think of as being culty in relation to Star Wars is probably the Star Wars Christmas special because Lucas yeah. wanted it got yeah. rid of, or yeah. you know, a Caravan of Courage, or you mm. know, what's it called, Battle for Endor, the Ewoks yeah. movies, because they're mm. the thing that nobody liked. Yes, so they're the exactly. thing that, that yeah. therefore kind of yeah. get the oh, if you're a real fan, yeah, I mean, Star Wars is great, but I like teddy bears in space. Yeah, that's right. That's if you're if you're a real Star Wars hipster, that's what you do. Isn't <laughs> you say, oh no, no, forget Empire Strikes Back, Caravan of Courage. That's the real one. Although I don't know? think I don't think anybody has ever tried seriously to reclaim uh, the, the holiday special. I think the best thing about the holiday special is just that it says something about the persistence of movies, which is that Lucas has tried to remove all trace of it from the earth yeah. and as a result did, of that I, was it recently um uh mark hamill mark said, hamill was it yeah that was it, an interview with trump was the worst thing he'd ever seen on television and he was in the star wars holidays <laughs> right. you know it's like and, and the thing is it, it's a it's a it's a sweet j- joke it is kind of like jack benny made a film called the horn blows at midnight and he made jokes about that for the rest of his career because it was a failure i mean that's yeah. probably that's interesting as a film that hasn't been reclaimed as a cult, although maybe it ought to be. One of the things that we tried to talk about in the program was that just because something is a flop or bad, you know, doesn't mean it's a cult. And 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 people talk about this quite a lot. The Ed Wood movies, for all the things that are wrong with them, have got something more than what's wrong with them. Oh, That's yeah, no, what makes Ed, them good. Ed Wood was a genuine visionary artist. No, to, to say, and his limitations are obviously technical and budgetary and I, and frankly talent. However, he had something to say. And the things we watch his films, and I'm, I'm actually uh, yeah, an obsessive about 1950s science fiction films anyway, so I've watched all of them. But there isn't a cult about many other filmmakers who are slightly more competent than Ed Wood, whose films are just dull. Um, Edward L. Kahn and Bert I. Gordon and uh, yeah, and and their films. Plural. That said, I do worry a bit that Edward sort of sucks all the air out of the room. So you don't. People tend not to look, for instance, at um, Roger Corman's science fiction films in the nineteen fifties, which are genuinely good on uh, extremely low budgets and with all kinds of scurrilousness. You know, which are obviously the the work of someone who's instinctively a brilliant filmmaker um, who just happens to be making films in four days. So they're a bit crude around the the edges. And Corman, his films do have cults around them, but it's almost like sometimes actual quality gets in the way of uh, of the relationship a cult has with the, the object of veneration. Oh boy, you kiss good, Audrey. Oh, I guess I just have a good kisser. Now you will do as I say. Yes, master. You will go out and find me some food. Yes, master. What's the matter? Don't you like me? Too bony. Too bony? Nobody ever told me that before. Beef is better than veal. You're such a dodo. What do you call this? Chopped liver? 
Corman once said that he was, I interviewed him as everybody has, and he was describing his career and he said, I, I, I started out making, he said, I started out making trash, then I was making exploitation, then I was making cult, and now I'm making genre. And what he was, what he meant was, I've always made the same thing. It's just people yeah. have changed the, the, the definition yeah. of it. But, um, but in relation to the to the cult thing, you know, you said the problem with Edward is it sucks all the air out of the room. Mm. Well, one of the things that we did touch on briefly in the program was the phenomenon of the room, which is a genuinely cool. terrible film, but is a very good example of the cult definition that you had of, of what, what's in that film is the enjoyment of people who've seen it 20 times in the Prince Charles with a bunch of other people who now all have the, the same shared yeah. investment in it. Yeah. But don't you think they could have randomly picked any film and had the, it could have been Pitch Perfect too, right? Okay, this is what I was going to ask you. Do you yeah. think, it, you see, I... I, I I don't know. The first time I but saw why the room... Was, why was it The Room and not Birdemic, which is just as bad? And they tried to push that as a sort of a, a repeat viewing cult, but people just wouldn't go back to it. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've seen it. But does it's it come rubbish. down to the fact, Kim, that, that Birdemic is exactly the thing that you... Okay, uh, the definition of a cult movie is not a movie that sets out to be a cult movie, so Sharknado and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. In the case of The Room... The thing is, although Tommy Wiseau may now say, oh, I always meant it that way. No, he didn't. Mm, he demonstrably yeah, no, was yeah. making what he considered to be a serious, a serious film. And that is that part of it is that it, it actually, for all the things that are wrong with it, has a serious heart. I suppose it has a, it has a heart and a soul. Yeah, I have to say. I've never been able to finish it. Yeah, it's like you and you and Pink Flamingos. It's like <laughs> I, I've got I, because we were making this thing. I've got like a DVD of the room, yeah, on the, on the pile in front of my television, and I watched about twenty minutes of it. And I thought I'll get back to it and finish it later, and I haven't. Um, and 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 there are people out there who think I've seen everything. I can tell you, I've not seen the last hour of the room. I will go back at some point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like there's a William Burroughs novel called the ticket that exploded. I've read the first 50 pages of and thought the hell with this. However, I've still got it. I will finish it one day. I mean, yeah, I think we're up to like 30 years on that one, but I will get back to it, honest. Yeah. You're going to be on your deathbed. They're going to be saying, yeah. Kim, have you done anything? Just get me a video of the room and the last bit yeah, of the... That's right. Yeah, okay. yeah. Tell me how it ends. So yeah. look, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you a couple of tweets. This is a tweet yeah. that came in. This came from uh, Paul Ainstone. And and he said, "Love this episode. We had loads of that, which is which we believe me, we're very grateful about. It. Honestly, if yeah, you spend no, a, if, it, it, it never gets old, does it? Never <laughs> gets old. Honestly, if you've watched the television program and you've liked it, the one of the one of the things that Twitter is there's a lot of things that are bad about Twitter. One of the things that's good about them is actually being able to tell people, and we really appreciate it. I mean, don't think for one minute that we don't sit there, you yeah. know. Hope anyway. So so this says, um, uh, love this episode, but why no? And then there's a picture from Donnie Darko. Yeah. So this is a kind of wide question, Kim, which is. Obviously, one of the things that the program provoked was an awful lot of yes, but why not insert my film here? So, yeah. give us a sense of the kind of of the the size of the playing field that we were dealing with. I mean, I, 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 how many titles are? Uh, it's over a hundred titles that, uh, yes. that did get listed. Um, I've just checked it out. Somebody on Letterboxd has actually made a stab. Uh, listing them so that's a that saves us a, 
uh, a job at some point. There's 127 titles in that episode, Kim, 127. And we obviously, um, yeah, we're whatever, 14 episodes into this series, this show after all is. And so there was a certain sense that sometimes we didn't want to go over ground we'd done before. There are one or two things where you just couldn't avoid going back. This was much more um, an instance with the show we did on, on British comedy, where a lot of people came in and said, why no Richard Curtis? And it's like, we did a whole show on rom-coms. We didn't need to go over that again. And there were a couple of things here. You thought, And with Nail, we covered in our several other things before that with nail and i is obviously a you know a a huge cult type movie um one was listed was donnie darko wasn't it and uh, yeah that is an interesting one that i i I don't think we even covered it in coming of age did we i I know we occasionally talk about a a, you know obviously we have loads of pitches for possible future episodes and one that I know you and I are both keen on is doing one on time travel at some point or time twisting. And so that would fit into that. So maybe there are a few we like put on the shelf thinking we'll come back. I mean, I've got to say, having done pop music and cult movies back to back and not done Phantom of the Paradise in either of them, Uh, I kind of feel guilty about that. But, you know, um, in that it's literally... Yeah, up there in my top ten movies, and we've not done it. But the uh, morning after we were, I, I spoke to Nick, you know, Nick Jones, uh, who's a director producer of the program, and he said, you know, the one thing I regret is Phantom of the Paradise, and I, and I, and I felt exactly the same way about the fact that Jeremy wasn't in Coming of Age, and yeah. uh, you know, and that there are there are absolute. I mean, like for example, we didn't get good vibrations into the pop movies one. No, um, yeah, or I catch us if you can. Somebody, yeah, uh, but, but, it's like yeah, we. Could, yeah, if they gave us if they gave us an hour and a half, you know. But the thing is, if they gave us an hour and a half, we would have exactly the same number of people saying, "But where is?" And I have to say, you, the usually, if you ask people who make programs like this, some a question like that, they'll say, "Oh, we just couldn't get the clips. We can't make that case." Jane Long, our, our clip researcher, is so good. I can tell you, she could get the clips. She got the clips from like the bondage films and the and the railway <laughs> movies, right? Yeah. Which which we put in kind of as a test case of, of what cult is. So yeah, if we'd thought of it and if we'd found room for it, Jane could have got the clips. I I think the if we'd found room for it thing is is the key thing. One of the th- I have to say one of the things that I actually like about the program is that the morning after on Twitter there are people suggesting an entire program load of other titles that mm. you could have included, partly because I. Think think as we said at the beginning these th- the programs aren't they're not set out to be canonical absolutely they're the opposite of canonical they are kind of the opposite of what anyone who's doing a history of film or a story of film is. we're doing completely the opposite of that we're saying this is a particular line that we've taken and these are representative films not necessarily the best because the whole point of studying genres is to study the the median the average the the things that crop up over and over again and okay, yeah, we always try and deal with the the outstanding examples. You know, it's 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 difficult to avoid. I don't know, Stand by Me in Coming of Age. Yeah, it's it's like the ones that, that everybody's top ten classics. But there are so many other things, and sometimes when you want to make a point about genre cinema, which is what most of our shows have been about, what you want to do is look at the average genre film and saying here are the conventions it's following. You know, of course. 
with cult movies, it's slightly different because many of them um, are, are deliberately ignoring the conventions. Aren't they? I mean, um, and, and the whole point is to, to break rules. But it, but isn't it fascinating how cult movies have been around so long that now you can look at what seem like absolutely barking, crazy, maniac movies and say, oh, wait a minute, they do have form and structure and conventions and repetitions and ticks and mannerisms across a wide variety of filmmakers and film industries. Yeah, they are still, yeah. I mean, a, a, a whole thing about genre cinema is it's telling the same stories over and over again, isn't it? It's like the, it used to be the, the, um, the kid who wanted to hear Red Riding Hood every night or, you know, to watch Frozen every, every day. Yeah, it's, you want the pleasure of repetition, but with the, the free song of surprises scattered through it. I mean, that's the, I mean, as a genre writer as well, I know that's a tension that you really have to do. I you, think... I, but there's a musical connection there, which is I think it's like it's like blues music or rockabilly music. If you if you if you work in a musical form that is very strictly ordered, it's the little changes that stand out. Yeah. And I'd say, for example, if you listen to you know Warren Smith playing "Sweet Sweet Girl," which is an absolutely straightforward twelve bar, except it isn't. It's got a weird two step in the in the wrong place, and that's the thing that makes that song brilliant. It's got a structure that someone's just done that to, and I think that's the same with with genres. And I'd also like to say on the subject of Donnie Darko, if we ever did Donnie Darko, we would have to do the. I mean, I absolutely hold this. The, the the first version of Donnie Darko to get released is much better than the version in which he went back in and put all the explanation stuff in yeah, that nobody that nobody wanted. And I know yeah. you and I had a conversation once when you said, at what point do you think it will be socially acceptable to admit that you like the the short version of the Wicker Man more? Yeah. <laughs> well, which I do, and I also think <laughs> that the version of Blade Runner with the uh, the narration works better. Uh, the thing is that. The, and this is a particular subgenre of cult, isn't it? The extended version, the director's cut, whatever. Those are films that are designed to be consumed by people who've already seen the earlier version. Therefore, they know the story. Um, it's like you can complain about the, uh, the voiceover in Blade Runner, but if you haven't seen that version first, you quite likely won't understand the film. Yeah, yeah. it's also worth when, pointing out that in, that in original versions of the script early version of the script because it had a kind of uh, hard-boiled detective thing there were voiceovers I mean yeah. Hampton talks about this he said that the voiceover wasn't completely stuck in early versions of the script actually did read like a kind of Marlowe-esque you know it was yeah. there so it's not it's not completely so look here's another this is another tweet on the subject of this this is from Steve Grace an excellent program I love the passion you show when you talk about the I love the passion you show talking about the devils come on Warner Brothers give us the uncut version we all crave a number of people wrote in because we had included in the program the thing about the devils, which is something which is particular to me because I've obsessed about the devils for a very long time. That Just to, to, to put this so everybody knows, here's the situation. The devils director's cut was completed and we premiered it in 2004. I think it was the history of horror season that Linda and I did that you were involved in, Kim. Mm -hmm. and, um, and ever since then, it has been banned by Warner Brothers. And they are not going to get off that particular pot for some time in the future because the honest truth of it is 
they hate the film. And I remember the thing that Ken Russell always said about it. When they first saw it, he said that um, they were they were so outraged. And he said the thing is, they'd read the script. They knew what was going to be in it, but they weren't very visual people. And uh, and they, they're they not going to change now because I don't think that they... It's not like finding missing footage for, or ex, extra footage for The Exorcist, which was a huge box office hit. If you found three, you know, of course they'll reissue that. Warners never liked The Devils. They never liked they never liked the film. They kind of wish they hadn't made it. I think the chances of you seeing that director's cut, even though it is done, and uh, I think it's great, uh, are very, very small because it's, it's there's, there's no financial impact. And, and believe me, the BFI tried doing things like saying, well, let us release it. So that you don't, you know, I remember there was an unrated version of Natural Born Killers that was on the, because I think because that was, that was an independent production that then Warner's kind of invested in. You, you're never going, you're, you're, there is, I cannot imagine a situation in which Warner's will back down on it because it's kind of like. Yeah, but I couldn't have imagined a situation where they'd actually put out Zack Snyder's four hour black and white version of Justice League. And they are. Yeah, no, that's yeah. true. The only thing is that putting out Zack Snyder's four-hour version of Justice League isn't going to annoy fundamentalist Christians in America, and I think that they, I think that there is an eye on that. No, no, you don't know that until we've seen it. No, I have to tell you, if I mean, if there's one thing that we agree with fundamentalist Christians in America on, it's that watching four hours of a Zack Snyder film <laughs> is probably bad for you. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm saying this in the. In the, in the spirit of coming together and, and unification and, and both sides is a, you know, we can all agree on something, you know, right. Yeah. Four hours of Zack Snyder is too yeah. much. But I, I honestly, I, you know, I'll say it and we'll just draw, I would love the Russell cut to be released. It is now nearly 20 years ago that we did that. And Ken was still here with us and Mike, and it was great. And it played at that thing and it got a standing ovation and it was a masterpiece. And as I've been saying for it, it is, a disgrace that Warner Brothers have censored it, but that you know they're a, they're a, I, I having fought this battle and banged my head against a wall for a long time. It, it would be great if they changed their mind. I can't see it happening anytime soon. But of course, I can prove nothing. This Mother Superior may be little more than a hysterical nun. But if it is a genuine case of possession by devils, and if Grandier himself was proved to be involved. Yes, I think it bears investigation, gentlemen. You've been a magician. If I'd come, I'd screw devils. You face eternal damnation. Conjecture is useless. We need a professional witch hunter. We must send for Father Barre. I'm slightly more optimistic than you are because I've lived through things like we'll never see the other side of the wind. Okay, you know, yeah. the, the full version of Metropolis is utterly lost. Yeah. You know, uh, those things happen. Um, the, the only difference here, Kim, is that it's it's not lost. It exists. It's finished. Yeah, it's know. done. They or they just won't allow. I mean, in fact, we thought that when we did the BFI release just after Ken died, that Warners would have a fit of conscience and uh, say, okay. <laughs> But that was a fundamental error, for rookie error, rookie yeah. error. Warner Brothers will suddenly do something for the good of mankind as opposed to for obvious error. Okay, so look, here's another tweet, Kim. This is, somebody said, uh, the eye cut in Shenandelou was a return yeah. to my college years and it still makes me wince. And somebody else, uh, Karina, uh, uh, said, I was one of the people that looked away. There were 
obviously when we were looking for cult movies, the first conversations that we had were, what about that scene? What about that scene? What about that scene? What did you think of the of the line that we tried to walk between we well, can show you this much and, and yeah, that I much? think that again that that we have to really credit uh, Jane. Uh, our uh, our researchers and, and editors for for keeping us on the road. I mean, what I don't know have we had any complaints? I mean, no. I'd be upset if we haven't. You know, it's like <laughs> because frankly, like four complaints about something are enough to con- trigger, yeah, to get a newsreader fired these days, aren't they? Yeah, um, surely somebody must have complained. I mean, come on, yeah, where, where are you? I mean, and if they haven't, it's probably because we flagged it up. Well, and yeah. Uh, um, we obviously come from a much more um, confrontational film culture than the average maker of BBC documentaries. <laughs> However, um, I'm I'm certainly uh, aware that yeah that that old thing they used to say about television is you're invited into people's homes uh, and it's it's up to you yeah not to be too much of an affront. And yeah, I think for instance. The the Chandelou sequence is still shocking. It's yeah, I can't still watch one it. of the most terrifying or upsetting moments in cinema. Because it was there, I thought there are lots of other things we could have shown that we didn't need to. Right? There are there are lots of um, and, and and actually is also going back to the the kerfuffle of the the video nasties era where people were saying oh yeah well people don't watch these films in the context of the whole film and they can fast forward and freeze frame all that and yeah we were taking clips so it's sometimes it's very easy to misrepresent or even to sensationalize a film with a clip yeah um i know we we had discussions about some of the films we talked about um most often to do with the behavior of the makers of the films rather than the the content of the films so and i think it's good that we are um having these discussions we are more so we did make a decision um not yeah to for instance we do uh we include clips from roman plansky's films right um which isn't to endorse his personal behaviour, but it's because he's he's impossible to ignore as a, a filmmaker in in this field, in the, the kind of films we Well, I mean, one of the one of the interesting things with the the Polanski thing is that uh, in, in the case of Rosemary's Baby, I mean, to say that Rosemary's Baby is a Polanski film, it's based on an Ira Levin novel. It's yeah. got a you know, it's produced mm-hmm. by William Castle. It's got a central performance by me. Mm-hmm. It, any film is more than the director, and in fact, one of the things that we did that we did do, and I think it, it worked, was to be able to use Rosemary's Baby without without necessarily thinking this is it's Ro- Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. It's Rosemary's no. Baby, and we obviously it is directed by Roman Polanski, and we put that next to uh, mm-hmm. uh, Repulsion. But it's and there were other discussions about other filmmakers who've you know which we we now know things about those filmmakers that perhaps actually one of the weirdest things is finding out things about filmmakers that everybody always knew but never nobody ever thought about it until suddenly people years later go oh hang on that's really terrible and (laughs) but I think here's the thing I think you're right I think it's good to have those discussions I think it is perfectly right and proper that you talk about that you have a discussion about where a film comes from and 
you know, because otherwise it's a kind of, it's a form of, oh, you can't discuss that. Why not? You should discuss it. It's all out there in the, particularly in cult movies when so much of it is tied up with where the films come from. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There is some, um, this is a, uh, a, a thing. This is a lovely tweet. This is from Neil. Who's, I went the Spurs on, uh, on Twitter. He said, here's some, here's some of the physical media I have relating to the excellent cult movie segment. And it's basically a picture of, all the physical videos that he owns <laughs> of the movies that we oh, talked yeah, about. Yeah, it's, 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 it's got some great things in there. He's got, he's got daisies. He's got the, the waters. He's got parasite. He's got possession. Um, this thing about physically owning those movies, I think is, is still part of the DNA of, of the cult experience. Th- oh yeah. To- if you're a, if you're a cult film fan, you don't want to stream it. Yeah, do you want it on your shelf? Yeah, it. Uh, and also, I, ha- I have to say that the kind of films that we're talking about, the cult movies, their streaming platforms aren't really comfortable with them in many in many ways, are they? It they are sort of the things that are seen as marginal titles. Often, most streaming platforms will have cult movies on them, but they're not the things that the algorithm puts to the top of the page are they they are you you have to go and like put in search items and, and find some and and um some platforms are better than others for 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 the the obscure and the arcane corners that they the, have where things settle but so, the thing about physical the physicality of an artifact i mean like when we, when we're not in covid times when we do the script meetings, the first script meetings, we do them in your flat. Your flat, I've never seen a wall in your flat because there are books. That I have <laughs> yeah, literally you, never you, actually yeah, seen a wall. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 what yeah. it is. Yeah. I'm surrounded by Kipple, but you put everyone to shame. But <laughs> that there is something about the ownership of the artifacts. The fact that I've got a Pazuzu head and I've got the you know Linda Blair thing. The, these are just talismans that I have in and, and I like them and I would I would like the world less if I didn't have them. Yeah. And I think part of what cult cult film uh, fandom is about is something that I grew up with which was collecting magazines, collecting ephemera, collecting because it it felt like a it just felt like a way of getting more deeply involved with the film and I, I think that you still have that same thing at least judging oh, yeah. by the look of your flat oh absolutely but i also uh, i mean one of the other things that we both do are like extra materials on blu-ray releases yeah uh and i love i love all that contextualizing stuff you know and and the the old publicity materials and the interviews and the background stuff and the commentary tracks and all that kind of stuff and it's almost like the the any any film that is a a cult movie is worthy of that level of examination because you're going to want to go back to it and revisit it and look at it in, in different ways. Do you think that that is in any danger of going away? Because as I said, we ended the cult movie program with a thing about you know can there still be a cult movie in this age in which everything is one click away? And I think there can. But I think that it is still part of a kind of an old world way of dealing with with films, which includes ownership and tactility and artifact. Well, yeah, I mean, cult, the whole thing about cult movies is they have to be exhibited. You have to see them somehow. And I, it, yeah, but that's there was a feeling that maybe the cult movie experience would change when 
repertory cinema sort of went out. And there are, or there were until last year, repertory cinemas still going. And in fact, there was a, a sort of a rather flourishing um, field of like pop-up cinemas and film clubs and people, you know, doing more and more um, revivals of things and putting on events around stuff. We've both done lots of those. Um, and I, and when I go to those and see, I'm not seeing, as it were, old people our age. You know, I am, I am seeing younger, new generations of fans e eager to discover. I'm even seeing, I mean, there's a lot of um, romance at the moment almost about our era of film buffery, isn't it? It's, it's like someone's going to make the the rep cinema version of High Fidelity eventually. <laughs> yeah, is it? Yeah, because I, I suppose there was that... Um, uh, Bertolucci film from the the Gilbert Dare novel about the, the film fans in in Paris in the in the sixties. Um, so it, the, the, the yeah we're looking back at, and and hey I, I, I yeah um, I've got an executive producer credit on Censor, a film set during the the video yeah. Nazis era, which I haven't uh, seen, but I've just been reading about today. It sounds is it as good as it sounds? I'm executive producer on okay, it. In yes, that case, of course, it is great. Great. As good as it sounds. Great. And what and 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 uh, Prano, the director of, of that, um, is younger. So for her, it's history and 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 a, a, a period in the past that she's excited to reconnect with. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm re I'm I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really looking forward to that, Kim. I, I read a piece that was comparing it to Atom McGowan's Adjuster, which I love. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Uh -huh. And it is it is such a fascinating period. I mean, not least, of course, because during that period, the BBFC, who were, you know originally Bridgeport Film Centres, then became Classification. Mm -hmm. They was they were under the Furman years, which is for people of our age. <laughs> the you know the, it's like the Roman Empire of, of yeah, film classification, right. yeah. isn't it? you know, with all the with all the rises and falls about it. Yeah. I went I went with um one of the examiners at the BBFC to see a to see a play. Um, uh, it was upstairs at some theatre, and it was called The Censor, and it was it was rubbish. Um, but it was basically a kind of uh, a, a a play about with a central character in it. He was sort of meant meant to be inspired by James Furman, and it ended up in this scatological on-stage thing, which which you can't... One of those things that you kind of wish you hadn't seen. <laughs> it was going to be impossible, to, impossible yeah. to answer it. But I really want to see Censor. It sounds great. Now, is that a potential cult movie in the making, or is it a successful horror movie? It's, it's a successful horror movie, but it actually probably does have a cult element to it. Um... Because it's a horror movie that connects with um, people outside genre. It, it, there's a certain, obviously, there's a whole level of metafiction. It is about, um, as, it, it'll make, a, a, there are all kinds of films that will make interesting double bills with Videodrome is one, obviously, because it's about the effects of watching. Um, but also it's kind of about what horror films are for and how you connect it. I don't, I don't want to uh, speak too much for, uh, probably on the di the director, but uh, what it does is horror adjacent rather than horror. Um, okay. Well, that's it. That's, a, that's that's. I'm sold that, on that, Kim. Yeah. That's that. That absolutely sells me. Also, lovely to remember that James Furman always said that one of the things about Videodrome, and I mean Cronenberg always yeah. said this was, it's basically a film that says, "What if the censors are right?" 
Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. What if what if watching this stuff literally does physically change you? Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the other things that we did in the cult program was to look at the way in which um, people can take movies that have been successful but have been discarded and then start to discover mm. different things. And then we were talking about things, you know, like Johnny Guitar, like the yeah. way in which um, uh, now maybe a gay audience can take a film that was absolutely originally you yeah, know, thought of as that, a mainstream film. Yeah, that was a particular type of cult wasn't it i think it's it's an urban phenomenon it's sort of a san francisco new york revival house um i remember in the uh i think it was somebody in sight and sound in the 80s said that there was somebody was having uh the, the uh, what was then the nft it's like nft2 we're having a season of um what we think of as, as you know those sort of early Derek Jarman type gay art films or lots of films about really depressed people having agonized relationships and committing suicide. And so I said they were sat in the lobby and they heard somebody said, how can you expect me to go and watch this in NFT two when Carmen Miranda is in NFT one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's it. <laughs> But there was a, there's a kind of there's a weird sort of modern twist on that, which is although it's a bit different, which is what happened to Showgirls, which Showgirls did then genuinely become the Rocky Horror of its generation, not through any... I know that Verhoeven now kind of reimagines what he thinks Showgirls was when it first came out. Have you watched it again? Because I haven't seen it since it came out, and I and I thought it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't something that particularly struck me as being worth revisiting. Yeah. I th here's, the, here's the thing. My, my partner, uh, Lindreth Williams did a very long interview when she was writing the book about erotic thrillers, um, which I know you've, you've read. And, uh, yeah. and there is a, there's a long interview in that with Verhoeven talking about, uh, amongst other things, showgirls. And the thing I've always thought about showgirls was this Verhoeven talking about it is a much better film than yeah. the film he actually made. <laughs> yeah. Because when you when you hear him talking about it, you go, 
well, that's a really interesting movie. And yet it seems to me that in a way, the cult following have found the interesting movie that I yeah. thought he didn't make. The other thing is that we did a lot of we did a section about cult movies that are about cults, and I wonder yeah. whether you think that there is actually the whole idea of the cult movie. What what is it about the idea of the cult that sticks so closely with that kind of cinema? I, I, I'll, I'll, a slight side At the moment, I'm writing a book about um, Boris Karloff and Raymond Chandler, which is trying to deal with the whole notion of what genres are and how they were. And there's this anecdote about Boris Karloff. You know, in, in Frankenstein, there's a scene where the monster accidentally drowns a little girl. And Karloff, a very sensitive man, complained to the director, James Whale, about this. and said, don't, don't you think we're going too far with this? That the, This is the moment that the audience will just, will just be so hor horrified by this. And James Whale said, you don't understand, Boris. It's part of the ritual. And I think that's it. There are things about genre cinema that are part of the ritual. They're inescapable. And sometimes they take you to places that aren't necessarily comfortable, but they have to be there. It's like you need a bit of bite, too. And I think that the, I don't know, maybe, maybe the, the cult movie experience is slightly lessened by not having the ritual nature of... Yeah, you know, just turning up at the uh, at the Scala and and, and uh, watching Eraserhead for the third time or whatever. Or and it's not even those films that you watch over and over again. It's it's. I mean, I remember doing things like going to the Scala's all night um, programs where they would do things like show five Godzilla movies or five film noir or five 1950s science fiction films which all kind of because you were up all night rolled together into this one <laughs> 10 hours the Godzilla one I remember in particular I, I, I sort of you know, nodded off in the middle of one city being destroyed and in the middle of the night Steve Woolley put on like 20 minutes of um, Dusty Springfield singing. So you <laughs> nodded off in the middle of Godzilla versus the cosmic monster. And then kapow, there was this yeah, big diva belting out the songs. And then you were back into Mothra and Rodan. And that is a, a cult experience. It, those individual films um, and that screening and that setting and Frankly, that gang of people that we all went and saw stuff with, yeah, because that's the the thing. I I got the impression at the time, for instance, that the NFT were was quite often where people went to see serious films on their own. Yeah, you would go to the NFT, and I did, did this too. You go and sit down, and you, and, and you'd sort of be there, and you'd see people you vaguely recognise and sort of say hello to. The Scala was where you and a gang of your mates went and stayed up all night, regardless of what was on sometimes. Yeah. And I, I was a regular at the, um, the, the Saturday night all-nighters. Uh, we used to come up from Brighton and meet up with friends, and we'd all sort of sit there and, and, and uh, you know, keep each other awake and get coffee and all of this kind of fun stuff that was part of it. So it was very much part of a... A social phenomenon. It wasn't just the passive consuming 
of cinema. The other other thing I remember about the Scala All-Nighters was because, you know, back in the day, you didn't have all-night buses. So the Scala All-Nighter was basically, it was was a hotel. I mean, you would go while transport was running, Mm. and then you'd watch all night, and then you'd come out six in the morning, whatever it was, and the buses had started again. Yeah. So it was, and and as you probably said, you you might kip through some of them. And I went to, you know, a lot of the, he he would, Steve would quite often program a bunch of horror movies and then put Snow White in the middle of it. They could be like that kind of juxtaposition thing. Um, Mm. But it was, the, the other thing, you know, you mentioned this about me not seeing Pink Flamingos to the end. The other thing is, I think that the experience of walking out of a movie is very different to the experience of turning it off on your television. Yes, there is. Yeah. It takes if to walk out of something in a screening full of actually takes a, an act of defiance, whereas yeah. anyone can just turn the channel over. And I think it's a shame to lose that as well because I think I, I love the fact that there was that th- there was still a point. I thought, no, enough, enough, enough. I'm not. I'm not doing this. Yeah. I, the thing is, since. Obviously, both of us, we've been professional critics since our early 20s. And as soon as I became a professional critic, I stopped walking out of things. Yeah, of course, you can't review a film you haven't watched No matter how much you're hating this experience, if you walk out, you can never say how much you hate this film. Because the absolute bare minimum you can do is watch this thing to the end. Then you can let all vent all the fury. Right, yeah, it But if you didn't watch it, that is almost like you've turned down the commission. Yeah, and I do occasionally see uh, criticism where somebody says, "I hated this film so much, I, I walked out." I think, well, then hand the commission on to some poor starving freelance who's willing to sit through that seven-hour Argentine no. movie in which nothing happens. I would yeah. absolutely, I would absolutely agree with that. And in fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start to bring this to a close with this. This is an, a, a, an anecdote that I told. Obviously, we didn't get into the program because it's too long. But on the subject, I, I saw Pink Flamingos before I was a film when I was a teenager, and uh, and I walked out of it. And then years later at Cannes, I interviewed John Waters. And um, and I said to John Waters, the thing is, I can't forgive you for the chicken scene. And he said, the chicken scene in which is the chicken sex scene in which the chicken gets killed. And um, and John Waters said, oh, everybody always says that. But I bet everyone who says that, they went straight out and had a chicken sandwich. And I said, well, I didn't because I'm a vegetarian. And he said, okay, but it's not like you keep chickens as pets. And I said, actually, I do. And there was a pause. And John Waters said, this is the best thing. He said... Okay, to you I apologise. Everyone else can kiss my ass, and that, if that, that I think was the kind of defining thing. So I, I can't review the end of Pink Flamingos, but I, I think we did set it to one side. I'd like to close with the original trailer New Line Cinema used to sell Pink Flamingos. Notice, no footage from the actual movie is ever shown. What did you happen to hear about it? From some friends who saw it and thought it was absolutely marvelous. Probably, I'll be very insulted. Rex Reed, Reed told, told us that it's uh, fabulous. Would you come out at midnight to see it? Why well, go home at midnight? What are you going to see there? I guess there's just two kinds of people: Miss Sandstone, my kind of people, and Apple. I'm going to finish with this tweet. Um, we've had a lot of these. Um, somebody said, "This is Mike Denham." Said, "I love this series." Can we maybe have an episode one day that covers the Western genre? Um, Kim, over to you. Well, I wrote a book about Westerns once. I think every time that we've drawn up a short list of what shows we want to do, the Western is on it. I I would love to do Westerns. I think that's uh, there's... It's almost like the primal 
film genre is it's the first genre that didn't really exist before cinema okay there were a couple of plays and there was 19th century narrative painting and a few novels like the, the Virginian or Last of the Mohicans. But it wasn't until you could point a camera at horses riding through a landscape that the Western became something. Um, and it's so bound up with the development of film as narrative, the development of American cinema. As well. I suppose it's, it's, it, um, it is a very American story, but there are, there are, many Americas. There are all kinds of things we can say about it and say it's it's one I would be really keen on doing. Um, but we've all got, I mean, our list of things we'd love to do. Uh, and that's, uh, and the, I mean, the musical also we've not yet done in any great form. But I think it's good that we are three and random seasons into this and there are still some like big beasts we've not yeah. slain. Yeah, we haven't done erotic thrillers. We haven't done yeah. westerns. You know, yeah. I really want to do undercover cop movies. Um, time yeah. travel, timey wimey. We would, you know, yeah. Or, yeah. Time yeah. twisting, I think, is what you called it. It's yeah. yeah I mean, it's like it, we could sit sit down and do it now. You know, all those <laughs> things. It's like, and and that's why I love this this show. Is it's like we don't have to even rush out and do lots of, you know spade work isn't it it's like i know if the uh, our gang sat in my front room or on zoom now yeah with about 20 minutes we'd have the next couple of shows you know broken yeah. 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 So listen, if you're listening to this and you and you're enjoying Secret Cinema, they're all they're all on iPlayer, with the exception of disaster movies, which keeps getting knocked off because it because there was a period when they were calling them specials rather than series. That's and it's a shame because actually it's it's three in um, series, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Actually four series. I but mean, I love yeah. I love the disaster movies one. I'm gonna try I'm gonna have yeah. a word with the uh, with the BBC and see whether they can get them put back on again. So do keep watching. We've we've just funnily enough recently had some i some iPlayer figures, which are great. I mean it does seem to me that they're, they're they're seen more on iPlayer than they are actually even when they even when they go out. So um, thanks ever so much if you've if you watch them and you know if you, please feel free to contact the BBC and tell them how much you really enjoy Secret Cinema and how much you think we should we should carry on with fantastically good value for them. Yeah. Uh, Kim, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you as always. What, what always have you right. what have you got at the moment that's out that that, that you ought to be hocking? Um. Actually, not that much. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, but my last novel was um, Anno Dracula, nineteen ninety nine, Daikaiju. Um, but that, I mean, that came out a little over a year ago now. Um, I am in the middle of writing this book called uh, Something More Than Night, uh, which won't be out until the end of this year. Um, so and when, can, when, when can we see Censor, on which you are an executive producer? Oh. Actually, it's a good question. That must be due out in Britain spring, I think. Um, I don't have a uh, release date for that. I'll, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, will, will you, why don't you come back onto the Kermit on Film podcast when that comes out and we'll talk, okay. well, after I, I've seen it, talk what, about I will, it. I will certainly, um, yeah, I'll come back. You should get Prano to come back and, and chat. I mean, uh, I, you must have met her at the various things. Uh, she came to the, um, the event we did about Nightmare Movies. Oh right, when when you when you did the new the new yeah. edition of the which was great. Okay, fine. Um, well, I, I would love to invite both of you on. And 
and made her own nightmare movie. So uh, fantastic, yeah. brilliant, Kim. A real pleasure, and I'm very I, like you. I'm, I love this series. I'm very proud of it, and I, I always say this: that it is a genuinely group effort. It is you and John and Nick and Jane and Liam and Danny and everyone else is involved in it. I know people talk about, you know, oh, you know, but it genuinely is a group effort and I've I've never been more proud of anything I've done. So a pleasure to have you on. Thank you ever so much. I hope that we get to do more. Well, there we go. My thanks to the great Kim Newman. Um, uh, Secrets of Cinema is available now on BBC iPlayer. If you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe, tell your friends, go to our Patreon page where you can see this as a video interview with uh, me and Kim. You can uh, also keep up with us uh, on Twitter. Kim is uh, at Dracula. I'm obviously at Kermode Movie, and there is an at Kermode on Film uh, tag as well. So follow all that stuff. Uh, stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.